<clears throat> Hi, everyone, and welcome uh, back again to another one of my interviews, YouTube interviews, podcast, Podbean podcast. It's been a while since I've done anything. Uh, I had a trip to Rome. Then we were closing on a house we were selling, our second house in Scranton, hence why I'm back on the farm. So let's say a prayer that the Internet gods are with us because Internet on the farm is, is a bit sketchy. Uh, so I'm, I'm back in the saddle and sort of raring to go. It is a little harder in the summer to line up academic guests who are scattered to the four winds, either on vacation or writing or at conferences and so on. So I apologize for the fact that uh, there just haven't been quite as many interviews, but we are very fortunate today to have someone I've known now for, I guess, what, four years, five years, Mark? I, I, I don't know, maybe longer. I can't remember. But yeah, uh, the, my my guest today is Mark Stallman. I have a rather lengthy interview. He says, I mean, uh, introduction. He says this is a shorter version. I'm going to give you this long one just so you people can, my, you people, my, my uh, listeners can get a, get a sense of, of the, the importance of our guest today. Mark Stallman is president of the Center for the Study of Digital Life, a retired Wall Street technology strategist, investment banker, and serial entrepreneur. He launched his first software company, Computron Technologies, Inc., in the early 1970s after leaving his study of theology at the University of Chicago and Molecular Genetics, University of Wisconsin-Madison, to join the still nascent digital revolution. Mark Stallman started his digital career as a computer architect and programmer, designing computer and networking systems for Wang Lab, Citibank, and the diplomat Arabic word processor for Computron. He began his Wall Street career as a principal at Sanford Bernstein and is credited with being the first to cover Sun Microsystems in 1986. He continued at Alex Brown and Sons, where he was a partner and he formed the new media banking practice, which managed the initial public offering for American Airline in 1992. America Online, not airline, in 1982. I've been flying a lot. American Airlines is on my mind. Stallman's work in computer architecture led him to coin the term network computing, which Sun Microsystems adopted for their corporate motto, the network is the computer. In the 1990s, Mark Stallman co-founded the world's largest Internet group, the New York New Media Association, and is credited with the term Silicon Alley. His why his why IBM failed article for Harvard Business Review led to an op ed in The Wall Street Journal and a consulting assignment at IBM that pushed the company towards his leadership in the services business. More recently, Stallman helped organize an East-West Dialogue of Civilizations conference at the United Nations and guest edited a special centennial issue of the literary journal Renaissance devoted to, the, to Marshall McLuhan. He's a, Mark Stallman is a prolific writer whose reports have generated over 50 million for his firms and 10 to 20 times investment returns for his clients. He was on the first he was on the first institutional investor magazine, All American Team for Microcomputers, has appeared often on CNBC, CNN, and Bluebird TV, was profiled by Forbes as the futurist, has written for Wired and Information Week, and was a contributor at, contributing editor at Strategy Plus Business. His godfather was Norbert, is it Wiener or Weiner? Wiener. Wiener. German is correct, and he considers CSDL to be a continuation of his father's participation in Wiener's 
genius project. Now, I dragged this off the Internet. It might be even a little out of date. Uh, is there anything you want to add to that lengthy introduction? You, we were talking offline about a current project that you're engaged in here this right. summer. So why don't you briefly add to that lengthy bio and, and plug what you're doing now? The bio that you found. Oh, first of all, uh, greetings uh, to yes. your audience. Yes. <laughs> um, it's a, uh, I am certain that some uh, very interesting and interested people will be watching this, and, and I'm looking forward uh, to dialogue with, with Larry. Um, since that bio was published, which in fact was now eight years ago, uh, on the formation of CSDL. <clears throat> there have been a few things that we've done. The two that are probably most notable is we have begun our own experimental online university entitled Trivium University. It is currently in its shakedown phase. It's online, experimental. My partner in this is the last, uh, I call him the last dean standing um, sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. Um, no problem. Uh, I call him the last dean, dean standing in the great books program where he was associate uh, dean of uh, liberal studies at university of Chicago. Uh, in, uh, as you probably all know, great books has pretty much collapsed, uh, today. And uh, they have kept him on as a lecturer, but there isn't the same formal program. That was in the, in the Graham School. So Triview or Trivium University has its own website, trivium.university. The second project, which is not in that older uh, bio, is uh, a geopolitical consulting firm. That firm is called Exogenous Inc., and its website is exogenousinknopunctuation.com. In that, we are actually training. <clears throat> so both of these are educational enterprises, and the training has some overlap, but we're training people in the geopolitics world to deal with something called net assessment, which was at one time the highest level think tank in the U.S. Pentagon. Very good. And, and so... In all of that, what I just read and what you added to it, what we're going to be discussing today is something you and I have discussed over the years, uh, which is a topic that interests both of us, which is the relationship between digital technology and, in a sense, theology uh, and, and Christianity in general. And I mean, it is your claim, if I and I don't want to misstate it, of course, uh, that the, the, the digital revolution has, has, in a sense, taken over everything uh, and that the church and theology have not taken it seriously enough. Uh, the radical nature in which the digital revolution has absolutely changed our, as the French would say, our mentalité, our, our very way of thinking, and that therefore there is an urgent need to bring theology uh, into conversation with with this digital world. All right. So all that being said, that that's the, the broad parameter of what we're talking about today. Technology, digital technology, theology, Christianity, evangelizing, all those sorts of things. It could this could be a 10 hour interview. I don't know. We'll see. Might be at least a multi part interview. Uh, but obviously, uh, 
Mark is also interested in the same kind of theology I'm interested in, communio theology, especially thinkers like De Lubac and Guardini. Uh, so let me first begin by asking you this general question. What, what is the link that sort of drew you into communio theology? And why, why do you think that communio theology sort of in particular is, is pertinent to this conversation with digital technology? Well, as uh, I'm sure Larry uh, has experienced, when you get the, the third link uh, in a, an inquiry, when you're researching something and it comes up again and again and again, you, you have to uh, pay attention. And uh, I would say the first link that uh, drew my attention to Communio was uh, Henri Lubach's um, medieval exegesis. Yes. So as, as uh, uh, Larry certainly knows better than I, there was a, a bit of a dust-up, and uh, Lubach was for a while uh, kept away from students and, and sent to the archives. And that had many effects, positive effects. And in particular, uh, it had a role, I believe, in Resource Small. Uh, but uh, as it turns out, he wrote a four-volume study, three of which have now been translated into English, and the fourth is in process, under the title Medieval Exegesis, The Four Senses of Scripture. Right. Now, now what does that have to do with technology? As Good it question. turns out, uh, Marshall McLuhan, who we will talk about <laughs> more uh, as we proceed, Marshall McLuhan of course, was an um, English professor, convert at the age of, of 24. Hold on a second again, sorry. Do not call me. Bye. <clears throat> sorry, again. No, that's um, no problem. No problem. We all have these glitches. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. So, um, uh, Marshall McLuhan's son, Eric, uh, went to the University of Dallas, uh, which, uh, again, I'm sure uh, there are folks uh, listening to this who know more about the role of the University of Dallas post-Vatican II. Um, I wound up actually meeting some of the folks who were there at the time and was told that it, it had a, uh, an entrance to campus, which was entitled The Home of the Fighting Phenomenologists. <laughs> it, 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 it also had a, an interesting role in bringing um, popularizers of Carl Jung into the whole discussion. But um, this uh, University of, of Dallas uh, time in the, uh, it turns out this, this was the uh, uh, early part of the century, uh, <laughs> Eric wound up getting his uh, PhD I'm, I'm sorry, I, I misspoke. Not the early part of the, the 21st century, but rather um, post-Vatican II, so this was a 1970s phenomenon, when he got his own PhD in English, as his father had. But he was exposed to de Lubac in that process. And he wound up coming back, working closely with his father, and ultimately the last book produced by the Cluans. Marshall and his son, Eric, is entitled Laws of Media, the New Science. And in the new science, there is a, 
important invention known as the Tetrad, and it is modeled directly <laughs> on Galubach. So all of a sudden, McLuhan winds up translating medieval exegesis into a fourfold understanding of technology. That was undoubtedly my first attraction to all of this. Uh, then the second um, notification I got uh, on this uh, has actually come in uh, from a, a grant that we uh, received from the uh, Benedict XVI Foundation to work on a multilingual translation of a work by Romano Guardini. Now, uh, I had known, and um, I'm sure there's a lot that I have yet to discover, but the role of Guardini in Benedict's life was massive, to the point that, yeah. as, as I understand it, he gave multiple eulogies on Guardini's death. Um, yes, so now did. all of a sudden we've got um, Guardini roped into all of this. And Guardini, as you know, probably is the Catholic theologian um, and pastoralist of the 20th century who spent the most detailed time working on this topic of <clears throat> technology and theology. And so we're now in the process of translating with some funds help from the Benedict XVI Foundation. Uh, uh, the uh, last essay, and you will find this essay already translated into English in the very end of Letters from Lake Cuomo. So for those who have that volume, and Larry said he's been reading up on his Guardini, uh, you will yes. notice that there's a series of letters which were published originally in the 1920s. And then tacked on to the end of it, because the German uh, edition of this decided in the 1960s to tack this effectively <clears throat> last word, we have uh, Humanity and the Machines. And it is an absolutely marvelous essay, so you can buy it in print now um, in English. <clears throat> I believe there are some other translations, but we proposed to put them all together in under one binding. And this is a, a discussion that was a uh, lecture that was given in 1958 at a technical school in uh, Munich, in München. And it calls for a much deeper study of the issues that are involved here. Uh, in addition to that, our relationship to Guardini is one where we have actually staged two dramas in which Marshall McLuhan and Guardini um, meet each other by having their words on the same topics read back and forth as if it was a conversation. We did this initially wow. at Notre Dame in South Bend, and then we did <clears throat> it uh, again uh, in a church basement in Toronto. We had intended to take that dialogue to Rome. And then, as probably many of you have experienced more seriously than I have, Rome is a tricky place. And so um, <laughs> uh, things didn't yeah. fall out uh, as we had hoped. And there were various uh, university uh, issues and, and competing events. So hopefully we'll do that one of these days. I would say the third um, primarily heads, heads up on my part. And so now it's impossible for me to walk away uh, from this. 
uh, has come from from one of the uh, younger participants recently admitted to the Balthazar uh, community in Switzerland. And uh, he has uh, been enormously helpful in introductions and beyond that. Uh, his name is Nick Powers. Uh, and uh, um, so adding all of this up, I feel like I'm um, no longer an orphan. I, I feel like I may be in, in the process of being adopted. That's great. And uh, well, we're happy we're happy to have you in the communio fold, that's for sure. Uh, but but what strikes me, you know, is that that little uh, sort of bio that you gave us of your relationship with communio, I think, is very, very similar to the manner in which many of us got in, in the years gone by, got drawn into the communio orbit. Uh, because we all have various interests, various little specializations, and we all are sort of coming at theology with different interests and so on. But we all tended to find in the communio thinkers a fresh metaphysical and historical perspective uh, that really opened the floodgates to all kinds of creativity while remaining firmly grounded in the orthodoxy of, of the tradition. Uh, and so I, I think your story is is actually probably not too dissimilar from a lot of the others. Uh, could you briefly before we go on? Uh, you, you, I mean, the second topic was, you know, the, the, the sort of that we wanted to talk about today was faculty psychology. Uh, but before we get there, I was wondering or I don't want to put you on the spot. Uh, I was very intrigued by the fact that you said Marshall McLuhan was so interested in in the, the sort of. De Lubach's Medieval Exegesis is four volume set. So can you give us a sort of brief nutshell, if you will, or, or, or a more lengthy a sort of description of what what use McLuhan made of those categories? Marshall McLuhan was a outsider in a Protestant land. Toronto, University of Toronto. Yeah. And so he had uh, uh, born uh, in in nineteen twenty one, dying in nineteen eighty uh, after a stroke that immobilized him in seventy nine. So most would know of McLuhan in terms of of his writings published in the nineteen sixties, and then he sort of seems to have somehow disappeared. Um, Gutenberg Galaxy was initially published in 62. That was followed up by uh, Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man, published in 64. By that point, he had become something of a hot item, and he was picked up by a wide variety of people, and that then led to a series of other books, uh, including the one which is probably best known, um, which uh, it turns out was not written uh, by him. The medium is the massage. The medium is the <laughs> message, of course, yeah, is the yeah, uh, yeah. title of the first chapter of Understanding Media. But he, um, <clears throat> some promoter types um, figured that they would write a series of books about striking intellectuals in the 60s, and McLuhan was one of those. And so the medium is the massage is the best selling, I think, of all those that have Marshall's name on it. <laughs> However, he uh, didn't write it. it was, yeah. yeah. So a group descended, uh, a group of uh, artists and others descended on his file cabinets and, and composed from that. 
Um, that then led to a war and peace in, in Global Village, um, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, McLuhan, I honestly do not think, even though he moved deliberately to Toronto to be close to the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies, PIMS, which at that point was still being run by its founder, Etienne Gilson. So he took his Catholicism very seriously, was a daily communicant. But I don't think, um, given all of the um, ins and outs of that time period, that he quite realized that he was um, a Thomist until the 70s, when a professor at Dallas, um, Frederick Fritz Willemsen, <clears throat> wound up becoming very close with McLuhan. And so there is a shift in McLuhan's writing from uh, knowing he's not talking to a Catholic audience, although the magazine that um, Larry just cited, Renaissance, which comes out of uh, Marquette, uh, he was on the board of editors there and published some 50 or so uh, reviews, articles, and, and so forth. So uh, he had that uh, journal <clears throat> predates Communio and, and may actually have some interesting uh, overlaps. McLuhan decided that, well, this is pretty straightforward. When he went to Cambridge University, where he got, he got his uh, PhD in, in 1943, titled The Classical Trivium, therefore Trivium University, uh, he has said that when he got to Cambridge in the 1930s, there were only two choices, Catholicism or Marxism. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> yes. And as and as we know, many of those who were Marxists turned out to be Russian spies uh, in the end from all yeah. of that. But uh, he chose Catholicism uh, and uh, that set him on a path, I guess, a philosophical path in which um, so-called Marxist uh, dialectics, um, uh, thesis, antithesis and synthesis. Uh, which is actually sometimes attributed to Hegel, but it's not exactly Hegel, but it certainly is um, uh, Leninish. And, and I, um, I believe that to this day, students who go through the educational system in Russia are drilled on that dialectic. So okay. Marshall had set out in many ways to undermine that. And so... The only way you can deal with three, and, and by the way, Marshall was, was quite clever. He would often actually pose for photographs with his hand sort of out of the focal point, but gesturing this for the Trinity. Uh, <laughs> but uh, if you're going for, to wait, hang on a second, for those who are just yeah. listening and not watching, uh, Mark Stallman just held up three uh, middle fingers uh, as the signal that Marshall McLuhan was sending. OK, so go ahead, Mark. Right. So if you're going to deal with a, a threefold uh, uh, sequential um, dialectic, uh, Marshall, I think, correctly understood that the only way to really do that is with a fourfold simultaneous dialectic. So instead of this being progressive, Debbie, I'm on a Zoom. 
I'm being interviewed. Why are you calling me? Stop it. I apologize. Oh, no problem. No problem whatsoever. Well, it's a problem for me. It's a problem for me, but not not for everybody else. I appreciate that. Uh, So uh, a fourfold dialectic, um, which then completely undermines the threefold Marxist dialectic, became in the laws of media the tetrad, where the four components of the tetrad are described as um, enhance, that would be antithesis, um, obsolesce, that would be the thesis, and instead of synthesis, he introduced two other quadrants to the tetrad. The first of those was originally called reverse, in other words, when things go completely haywire, later called flip, but the most important addition that he made, and this uh, actually in terms of the four senses, uh, corresponds to the literal historical sense. Um, so as, as you know, there's a literal and three allegorical senses right, of Scripture right. as described by Lubach. Um, so he came down in a very um, powerful way on that fourth sense, which is the literal sense of Scripture as the truth in its historical setting. And he called that reversal. And this, I'm sorry, retrieval, not reversal. The retrieval quadrant is uh, where we bring back from our previous experiences, where we bring back from our knowledge, memory of history. And that then utterly reshapes the other three quadrants. So this final work of the McLuhan family, uh, Marshall did not write the book, but he worked through the 70s after he was canceled. Um, McLuhan is one of the early victims of of that phenomenon. And uh, it winds up uh, in very uh, rich fashion, written largely by the son, Eric, on the basis of the Lubach's um, Four Senses of Scripture. It winds up uh, in the book Laws of Media, um, The New Science, published in 1988, posthumous to McLuhan's death in 1980. Very good. Um, it, it, what, what that really underscores <clears throat> is what a Renaissance man Marshall McLuhan really was in so many ways. Uh, and, and also then what a synthetic thinker he was, synthetic and systematic, where he could draw all of these disparate ideas together into into a coherent whole, into a coherent picture that was actually something new and, and, and creative. I really think I mean, I have to thank you for sort of reintroducing me to Marshall McLuhan. He was somebody I read years and years and years ago and then sort of set aside. And then it was through my friendship with you that I suddenly said, well, you know, if, if Mark thinks McLuhan is still worth reading, then he must be. And so I have read a, a few things by him, mostly things you've sent me here and there, <clears throat> but I haven't completely dug down deeply into his thought as, as I as I had hoped to before this interview. Things have intervened. Trips to Rome had to be done and so on. Uh, but anyway, so here we are. Uh, and and 
I, I think that our, our, what I want, I want to leave the, the listeners here with is, is just the importance, I think, of not dismissing thinkers because they're, you know, 60 years in the past, 70 years. I mean, like my guy, Hans Urs von Balthasar, has now been dead, you know, for 40 years or so. Not quite, <clears throat> but, you know, and you know, why should we read Guardini? I mean, my God, his heyday was in the 30s or something, 40s. But it just drives home the fact that these ideas are perennial. Uh, and because so many of them in their time were kind of canceled in, in various ways, uh, their, their retrieval now is all the more important because they didn't have the impact during their time that they should right. have because they were ahead of their time. And now is their time. <laughs> all right. Their time the, is now. The, the, way, the way I put this is we are no longer pushing a rock up a hill. Uh, right. Guardini. Um, and um, many others um, had uh, difficulties uh, with Rome. They had difficulties with um, various orders, um, and, and they were in a Sisyphean uh, sort of situation, Sisyphusian yeah. situation. Yes. Um, now we are in a radically different environment. And the way I would describe it is instead of pushing a rock up a hill every day, knowing <coughs> And it's going to roll back down on you anyway. We are we're over the top of the hill. We're now in a very different circumstance. Now the issue we have to worry about are landslides uh, and um, and snow crashes. Um, yeah, the ground has become so fragile that uh, really large phenomena can come together very quickly. And I think it's obviously important that we take advantage of the, the legacy that we've been granted by, by people who uh, fought every day uh, oh, and absolutely. to apply it in a situation uh, radically different. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and before we get then into the sort of the second topic on my list here, uh, that you provided to me, and I agree with the dropping of faculties psychology in, in the modernist crisis. <coughs> uh, excuse me, I have a cough, uh, allergies. Uh, I apologize for that. But uh, I want to I want to briefly bring to our to my listeners, my viewers, uh, something that we teased them with at the very beginning of this, which is the importance of the digital revolution. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit before we move on to these, to these other topics that you listed. Why do you think it is first off, what is the digital revolution? And then second, why has it changed everything? And why is that important? Human beings, all of us must work through a series of stages of development. Whether we want to give credit to Jean Piaget or others, whether we want to specify that these stages don't necessarily apply in a rigid fashion, that's all fine. And yet, the baby cannot live by themselves, cannot speak, cannot participate in society yet. So we have to form them. So the formation of a human being eventually brings them to a confrontation with the wider world. Hopefully they are relatively protected and shielded uh, in their uh, infancy. They wind up uh, with a slightly enlarged uh, 
horizon as they begin their schooling. But there's a point that comes when the human being has to sort out what is the structure of this world that I've been born into. And those structures are not fixed. They are not perennial by any means. We used to call that period in our development grammar school. And the reason <laughs> why is because grammar as the um, as the essential component of the trivium had been the basis of Western education uh, going all the way back to the ancients. Uh, and so we confront our environmental grammar, which is no longer um, uh, trees and, and uh, streams and mountains. It's become technological. So the technological environment into which we are born has enormous <clears throat> impact on our formation. Um, therefore, we would call them actually psycho-technological environments. Now, these environments, it might seem, are changing every day, but there's an underlying basis. There's a ground which for an extended period of time, could be hundreds of years, becomes uh, the fundamental context in which we are now trying to learn how to grow up. Effectively, the years bef before puberty and after the mastering of writing. So we learn how to speak, we learn how to write, and then eventually our biology takes over and we learn how to reproduce. <laughs> uh, that window <clears throat> where you grew up, your influences, what you paid attention to, what habits you formed, that winds up being deeply tied back to the underlying technology. Now, to fully explain the difference between the technology that most of us grew up with, which I'll just shorthand by calling it television, and the current digital uh, paradigm, these have profound impacts on what uh, Aquinas and many, many others called the inner or interior senses, starting with uh, Aristotle, if you will, um, his uh, uh, peripsyche, uh, probably not the best pronunciation of the Greek, Dionyma is the name that most people know it by, its Latin name, and then ultimately the correct English translation would be on the soul. This is a 350, roughly, B.C. written work Many, many translations are available. I would highly recommend the Joe Sachs translation, which, by the way, came out of the uh, uh, St. John's um, uh, Great Books uh, program, where Sachs had, had worked as a translator for many years. It's a marvelous translation, not just because of, of the way he deals with the Greek as a translator, but he goes out of his way to provide glossaries in Greek and in English as well as a, a lot of commentary. Uh, Aristotle is not easy. Aristotle can be mistranslated and often is. Uh, and so this is uh, uh, 
obviously the situation that, that Aquinas found himself in, as he in fact hired translators to bring all this uh, to focus. So to, uh, sorry for the long-winded uh, introduction here, but as it turns out, those interior senses, which most people who have studied this point to Summa Theologica, book one, question 78, article four, are the interior senses properly distinguished in the standard English translation now. That, in the hands of Thomas, <clears throat> became particularly, um, uh, I would just reference for you, uh, I'm sure many of you are quite advanced in this, but, but Thomas wrote a commentary on uh, Aristotle's Dianima. Uh, and that is an enormously rich place to look for theological intersections because it is in those interior senses as we are between writing and puberty, as we are in grammar school, properly grammar school, that is the time period in our human development where we pretty much form our biases, our habits, our um, the foundation, the formation, which we'll keep for the rest of our lives. And so with that as prologue, prologue the fundamental thing here is that digital radically changes those interior senses. You, the, it turns out that the first, quote, digital generation uh, isn't us. We, we, we grew up under the conditions of television. Yes. But the first generation who did grow up under digital conditions is typically referred to by the marketeers, because they're the ones who draw these demarcations, because they want to sell things to people. It's typically called Gen Z. So the right. sequence... Gen X, <clears throat> there was no Gen Y. It's typically referred to as millennials. Um, both of my children are millennials. Um, and then Gen Z, uh, which are roughly people between the age of, of 12 and 25 today, to be followed by what the marketeers call the alpha and beta generations. By the time we get to those generations, that's to say, alpha generation is kids 12 or younger. So they are literally right now going through that formation phase, that, that critical, what is the grammar of this world I live in? They, as they mature and as we begin to interact with them outside of our <laughs> homes and so forth, that's going to be a, a real kick in the head for how we tend to think about all of these things because they simply did not experience what came before and uh, generations afterwards even more aggressively. As it turns out, the environment that I grew up in, I'm 75 years old, born in 48, so uh, I grew up in the 50s with uh, Clara Bell and Howdy Doody and um, uh, radio personalities still getting on like Ed Sullivan and uh, Walter Cronkite uh, from the previous uh, environment getting on and, and pretending that nothing has really changed. Well, of course, everything had changed in the 60s. The counterculture of the 60s is the most obvious uh, way to notice that the kids who grew up in the 50s 
had a very different idea than their parents who were probably primarily devoted to reading, writing, print, and so forth. So we had a break, which I lived through. The break we're living through now is 10 times, 100 times more dramatic because television is a illusion machine. We all know how politics, economics, religion have all been swept up in imaginary schemes during our lifetime. That, we would suggest, has been formally caused by the environment in which we were all operating, which was illusion. Um, televisions were designed to manipulate uh, people's uh, awareness in the direction of, of, of buying um, Wheaties um, uh, to begin with, and then later, of course, uh, to try to convince us uh, who to vote for and, and beyond. That's um, kind of was Neil, Neil Postman's point. Absolutely. Neil Postman was a uh, colleague of Marshall McLuhan. Uh, he was right. at NYU. Uh, and uh, his uh, famous phrase, amusing ourselves to death, that, yeah. that is, that's an effect of television. Right. Um, so we're now at a point where Gen X, the first digital generation, has in many key respects deeply rejected all of that. You will see this in polls. The religion polls are, are a reflection of this. The um, trust um, barometers are a reflection of this. The, the, the wholesale lack of trust of institutions is a rejection of this decades-long ma manipulative environment. And so what I've found, and in fact, with Trivium University, the core of our students are in their 20s. They are angry at the millennials. They are angry at their lack of uh, comprehension or um, even, even willingness to uh, say things, stand up and do something. Um, so that there's a, um, we're in now in the midst of a very important transition and that is a transition from the quality that television, that's to say the inner sense that was radically overemphasized by an illusion environment. And that would be in the four interior senses as described by Aquinas, that would be imagination. We've been swimming uh, in an ocean of imagination. Digital cannot sustain imagination because the technology instead is based upon memory. I was once a computer architect, as Larry indicated, and in that uh, world, what I was dealing with was relationships between different orders of memory. A computer doesn't actually spend much time computing. It spends almost all of its time internally shuffling things around from one memory location to another, making sure that everything is in order, making sure that everything is exact. And this character of computers is captured in McLuhan's book, Laws of Media, 
which largely comprises tetrads, examples of tetrads, as applied to various artifacts, various technologies. The tetrad for computers in laws of media, in the retrieval quadrant, which as I said before, that, that's the key addition, which in McLuhan's view, <coughs> fundamentally undermined uh, the Marxian uh, threefold dialectic. The retrieval quadrant for computers in laws of media reads the following. Total memory, perfect and exact. Yeah. Human beings, of course, don't have total memory. They, they're not perfect and exact. But computers must be. And so the influence on us, as we live now in a digital world, not a television world, now the emphasis on us is memory, not imagination. And in in that inner that world of inner senses, there could not be a more radical and consequential uh, shift in the balance of these senses. Uh, Marshall McLuhan wrote a great deal about the balance of senses, but he dealt with the external senses. <clears throat> He was unaware, for reasons we could get into, because the church abandoned uh, the inner senses. Uh, initially in the uh, modernist crisis, uh, but later um, with the history that, that came afterwards. Let me let me read um, one sentence here. If, I'm sure you're all familiar, or many are you familiar, with the um, early 20th century uh, Catholic Encyclopedia. So, so this was effectively the um, answer of the English-speaking Catholic Church to the Britannican uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. So Catholic Encyclopedia. So if you were just simply to go to the Faculties of the Soul entry in the Catholic Encyclopedia, <coughs> you'll note that there's a key section here uh, ending with the following sentence that the faculty theory has no essential connection with Catholic dogma is sufficiently evidenced by the fact that it has found and still finds opponents as well as advocates among Catholic theologians and philosophers. This is a justification, I think initially published around uh, 1909, so we're right in the middle of the modernist uh, crisis. We, we've got the oath against modernism uh, that has or is about to be promulgated. Um, uh, Pashendi came out in 1908, I do believe, and then, then the oath came very shortly thereafter, yes. Correct, correct. So uh, to explain to non-Catholics what's going on here in that time period had a fairly, understandably, uh, um, dogma first, and uh, everything else we can throw overboard. The, the the plane is having a hard time getting off the runway, so let's get rid of all the luggage that we don't need. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And some of the passengers. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So as uh, I would guess, um, uh, most here know, the church effectively no bid the whole topic of psychology psychology is beginning to um shift from its 
older basis. By the way, these interior senses were uh, Jewish. Maimonides discusses them. They were Islamic. Um, they're all over uh, Avicenna, all over Averroes. Um, for roughly two millennia, we dealt with what we would now call the subconscious in some form of a faculty uh, fashion. So who would object? Who would stand up and say, that's not right. I'm not going to do that anymore. Well, I, we're now working on trying to pull together some of the history of this because the Catholic Encyclopedia does not inform us who was arguing with who and on what basis. It just simply says, if people are arguing with each other, obviously it's not dogma. Fine. <laughs> but I have at least a partial answer. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Francisco Suarez deliberately contradicted Thomas on the topic of internal senses. There is only one inner sense which has many functions in Suarez, not the multiple inner senses as it was described by Aquinas. Now, I am not a scholar of Suarez. Um, I have read <clears throat> many scholars, and there is an interesting strain about how this great Jesuit commentator on Aquinas uh, comments uh, in, a, in a deviant sort of direction uh, over and over. And, and we all know the story of, of Thomism and why yeah. uh, there were dozens of different uh, Thomisms and, and how uh, Leo XIII's attempt um, failed. But in this one little corner of this, Leo XIII attempted to get a Thomas psychologist to Louvain uh, to pursue all of these matters and failed. And a man who you may be familiar with, ultimately Cardinal Mercier, yes, he winds up uh, being the big shot in Louvain on psychology and other topics. And all of this faculty psychology stuff is gone. Gone. In particular, uh, the key to the inner senses is what uh, for millennia had been called the cogitative power. And the reason why this is the key is because I believe it is Catholic dogma that the intellect is immaterial. Yes. Whereas the senses are material. Yes. So how does materiality, what we sense, how does it interact with, how does it collide with the immaterial intellect? And the answer to that is typically, for those who are familiar with literature, what is known as phantasms. So there is a um, reversion to the phantasms is the way this is often described. Yes. The place where those phantasms are formed, if we are healthy, is in the cogitative power. If we ignore it altogether, if instead we allow ourselves to be flooded with fantasies, which is what happens when you're imbalanced, when the imagination and memory are imbalanced, then you wind up with the world in which we now live. Uh, in transition, radical transition 
to a world in which the balance between imagination and memory has been restored. And that process means <clears throat> radical emphasis on memory. And the most important topic which digital has placed in front of humanity is what does it mean to be human? Oh my, yes. Artificial intelligence, artificial humanity, uh, artificial um, sentimentality, and so forth. All of these artificialities have compelled humans uh, to try to remember what a human really is. That is so profound, and it cannot be stopped. This is not pushing a rock up a hill. This is an avalanche. Yes, I agree. Um, do you want Do you want to continue on that line of thought? Sure, sure, sure. sure. Uh, I don't know that this is the case, but um, the proposition that the uh, detachment of our inner senses <clears throat> from the critical dogmatic elements of the material and the immaterial um, in overlap with each other, uh, you would not expect that from a medieval sensibility. Um, you could probably find some interesting dissenters from all of that, but more or less as you go through all of your uh, medieval theologians, you'll see some version of this, and not just in Christianity. It's spread out. So what was it that caused this abandonment of that critical element. Yeah. And here, uh, and I'm very sorry, I, I have no intention of being in any way disrespectful or uh, insulting to anybody uh, in your <laughs> audience. But the Jesuits are a very interesting uh, phenomenon, shall we say. You go right ahead. The um, Ratio Studiorum, which became in the 16th century the Catholic Church's um, teaching curriculum is not a product of the medieval age. It is absolutely a product of the technology of print. Right. And, and so uh, not only uh, is it printed, not only are the exercises printed, uh, not only was the, the church a very early promoter of the printing press, in part for its use as printing indulgences. But this larger topic that Larry brought up in the beginning, how has the church understood the effects of these sweeping technological changes? The shift from a scribal or medieval world, which we are retrieving through Resource Mall uh, and many other activities, the shift between that and a print-based world, which is the environment in which the Jesuits came up, is a um, probably not talked about enough component of, of our own yeah. history. Yeah. Um, as we know, the Jesuits, of course, were formed in Paris, but they were Sp Spanish. Why? Yes. And the most straightforward answer that I've been able to glean here is that if the Jesuits had attempted to put together a, a new teaching order in Spain, 
they would not have survived the crib. <laughs> yeah, there were other heavier hitters uh, already there. The the conflict between the D Dominicans and the Jesuits yes. um, uh, appears in so many places. So one of the things that we have done um, some very deep research on in our geopolitical efforts is China. So I'm uh, quite familiar with Matteo Ricci, the first Jesuit um, who really succeeded in his mission to China, getting all the way to Beijing and, and having the um, observatory, old observatory, astronomical observatory given to his charge. Um, and then there is the uh, effort to try to convince Leibniz that the Chinese are proto-Christian. So there are swirling currents of history here as we change the underlying technologies. But I would suggest that in many ways, the, the church lost its, many of the key aspects of its original character as a result of the printing press. Printing press, of course, gave us the Reformation. In a certain sense, the church had to, if you can't beat them, join them and, and outdo um, the Protestants in, in many directions. <clears throat> That's an important history to recognize, largely, because we're going through the same thing now. Jesuits were print. We're all familiar with what you might call the electric Catholics. Um, and that's the modernist crisis um, it is really uh, a pushback by Pius X and many others against electricity and the effects of electricity. And we have been living through uh, councils and uh, enormous amounts of strife as, we have, as we've tried to reconcile that. Here's where Communio becomes so crucially important, but has not yet, to best of my knowledge, been able to address these questions. There is one issue that I found um, of the journal Communio, which was meant to discuss the topic of technology. Right. It was George Parker Grant is in there. Yes. Summer of 1978. Yes, I believe. And that, uh, by the way, is one of the issues that has long since sold out. So if you went, went to, to buy one now, you're going to get a PDF. Yeah. You're not even, you're not even going, to, going to get a, a Xerox copy. Uh, unfortunately, that issue does not really take the task on. And the author who wrote an essay in there, who I know best, is Walter Ong, SJ. And Walter Ong was a student of Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan supervised his master's thesis and gave him the subject, the title, for his eventual 1956 Harvard uh, dissertation uh, on Ramos, uh, Peter Ramos, and, and the end of end of dialogue and the, and the rise of method. So... Uh, Honestly, I think that the uh, opportunity now for the Communio community to revisit some of these critical issues um, will be a massive opportunity if we can look at this honestly and um, with charity uh, towards one another. We all have a great deal to learn. And my hope, in fact, is that for the first time ever, McLuhan winds up getting um, 
uh, maybe Larry, maybe some others who are listening to this, winds up getting the theological attention that he should have a long time ago. Well, I, I hope that's true. Um, I would point out with regard to Comunio uh, that even though there was only sort of one issue that has been devoted to that in, its, in, in the whole issue, uh, there have been a smattering of articles down through the decades by various authors on the subject. I'm thinking, for example, uh, of a friend of mine who teaches at the John Paul II Institute in Washington right now and a frequent com contributor to Comunio, and that would be Michael Hanby. I don't know if you're familiar with the works of Michael Hanby. I'm not, uh, no. uh, he has a, a book out called No God, Question Mark, No Science. And, okay. and he, he deals with the... Uh, the issue of theology and, and, and the technological paradigm quite a bit in, in his community articles and, and in that book. And I, and I imagine that in some ways, the philosophy of David C. Schindler, uh, the, the, the son of David L. Schindler, um, touches, it doesn't deal with the issue directly, but it, it sort of has That's ramifications correct. for all those things. But I want yeah, to come and back. And also, I would add to that list, if, if you don't mind, uh, no, Cyril O'Regan. No, oh, Cyril yes. O'Regan at, at, uh, at Notre Dame. Yes. And he's partway through, I think, a seven-volume work on modernism and Gnosticism, uh, yes. which is which yeah. important to notice in this, because the illusions that uh, the television uh, era brought us have absolutely emphasized uh, Gnosticism. Uh, Francis has begun, in fact, publicly to talk about this. Um, Benedict um, uh, has a few uh, homilies in, in which it's brought up, but it, it has only gotten worse and worse. And perhaps at, at another time, we will come back together. But I, I want to talk about um, artificial intelligence and those who are interested in replacing human beings with something more perfect. So the aspect of Gnosticism, which is not just simply the uh, Manichaean uh, distinction, but rather the um, self-deification, rather the uh, elevation of a human being to becoming godlike, um, misunderstanding um, the crucial passages about being made in the image and likeness of God. Yeah, Th This has now given rise to a new civilization, which we call a digital sphere. We probably don't have time here to go into what that means, but uh, I look forward to further conversations. But this is effectively the, um, how do we become immortal? That, that, that's the most yeah. straightforward uh, dimension of this in, in, in its Gnostic uh, characteristic. Well, do you have time to stick around a little bit longer here today? I do, I do. Okay, so maybe we can get to that. But I want to come back because I, I, think, I think that is just absolutely critical and crucial. And it's, and it's an idea that I had hoped that we would get to. The, the, the implications of artificial intelligence, the transhumanist project, the, the sort of quest for the, what they call the singularity. Uh, yeah, I think that's all very, very much uh, on the agenda of things that need to be discussed. But before we do, I, wa I want to come back because maybe the, the viewers and listeners are, are missing a connection here that I'm not certain we completely made. <clears throat> and that is, okay, television was the realm of illusion, which pertains to the realm of the imagination. Uh, and then the digital revolution is, is more about memory and not so much about imagination. So what, so what would your claim be in terms of the interior senses? 
What is your claim with regard to what it is that the digital world's uh, sort of privileging of memory over imagination, what does that specifically do to us? What is it doing to Gen Z? How do we tailor our, our preaching as a church to a generation formed by this sort of digital emphasis on memory? What, what I've experienced in the um, <clears throat> handful of classes that we have done this summer, the summer school heading into um, Trivue, uh, with tuition and, and so forth, uh, starting in the fall, is that these are people who are com completely unwilling to avoid the footnotes. <laughs> I'm guilty of that. <laughs> these are people who constantly have the question, well, where did that come from? And where did, where did that come from? Yeah. And, and why should I be paying attention to that? They, they have totally checked out, no longer trust political uh, campaign, no longer trust television, no longer trust uh, nonsense, uh, widespread understanding of, of what's actually going on in Ukraine uh, and so forth. Um, not, not universal by any means, but... Uh, a shockingly large percentage of them. And as I say, it's going to get more and more notable. So in effect, what this has done is turned people into their own independently researched resource mall movements. Okay, yes. So we, we, we now have millions of people who on their own have said, I, I just, I don't buy the story. I, I don't, I don't, the, the story that they, that they have been telling me since I was a kid, it, it just doesn't work. So I'm going to have to figure it out myself. I'm going to have to find some friends to figure it out with, but we're, we're in a period, an early version of it, which will only become more intense. We're in a period of, I am fascinated with classical thinking. So you, you remember the um, juxtaposition, which was, which was quite uh, notable, uh, particularly in, in the early days of print, between the ancients and the moderns. That was yeah. one way that the shift from the scribal environment was characterized as it moved into the print environment. So mm -hmm. there's this group of people with ancient thinking, and we really don't need to pay much attention to that. We're modern now, and now we can go with Descartes or go with take your pick. Mm -hmm. um, where we can mathematize uh, all of these things, which are not logical. They're actually analogical. But the shift from analogy uh, to, to logic, um, with Descartes typically being the poster boy uh, for that sort of uh, shift, that took over in the West. Important to note here, at some point we may get a chance to talk about the East, but yeah. print doesn't happen if you have a logographic um, character set. Chinese can't be printed in the way we can with the alphabet. So a divergence, East and West, uh, occurred at that point. So um, the specific way that this works is that people are tired of playing games. They're, they're, they're tired of make-believe. 
they're they're tired of getting stoned. Right. Doesn't mean that they're going to stop doing any of that a hundred percent. But they they know they they look around. They they see their peers. They see their older uh, siblings, and they they see that at least are beginning to focus on the destruction associated with that. So this is a sensibility shift. This is our subconscious, as we would say in modern psychology, or our inner senses, as it was uh, described uh, in scribal times. Uh, there's an enormous amount of destruction of psyches now underway. It is impossible for that to be ignored anymore. Right. The mental health crisis of undergraduates, the massive amount of antidepressants and other drugs being handed out by university administrations, the deep concerns about waves of suicides and, and so forth. This is, this is no longer something that can be ignored. But what is the cause of that? I mean, is, is the, the, the cause, cause of that... Of the, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the cause of that is in that critical period, which we used to call grammar school, Right. as we're trying to sort out the structures of the world in which we live, we are noticing the structures that are generated by television and imagination are radically different structures. Okay, now we're, yes, exactly. So it's right. a kind of resentment. It's a sort of resentment at the, at the, at the falseness of the illusions Correct. That, that that sensibility has created. And now the digital revolution comes along and, and gives us what as a substitute? Um, obviously, a diminishment of a, a distrust of imagination and the institutions right. that went with that. Is that what digital Absolutely has created? A distrust of the, of, um, the millennial generation, a, a distrust in terms of, of parents uh, who allowed you to go into this, a distrust of the institutions that were based upon all of this. And the alternative is now I will have to figure this out myself. Now I, I, I can't trust any of that anymore. I'm going to have to actually do some serious reading here. Um, now, when we, what is, go ahead. We've introduced uh, Augustine, Aquinas, uh, and Aristotle into uh, this disparate group of people. Um, they are, um, as the colloquial would put it, they're eating it up. It wasn't what they signed up for necessarily, but now they're, they're sorting out, this is my opportunity to approach a good life, to uh, benefit uh, humanity more broadly. Um, and uh, if it were not for digital, in particular, if it were not for digital attempting to make artificial versions of us, this would never have happened. It's interesting. So in some ways, the digital revolution has led to a resurgence of interest in the scribal. <laughs> correct. That's that ab absolutely correct. And, and therein is a lesson for the church, I think, today. Uh, that perhaps uh, it's sort of a back to the future sort of moment for us where uh, that which has, which has been dismissed by, by the television generation is, is now new again. 
Right. That's right. You know, it's very, that's, that's very interesting. Okay. So we have probably about 10 or 15 minutes left. So we're obviously going to have to have another episode to discuss, I, I think in, in more detail, by the way, is my sound okay? Because I, I, my, my microphone, my main microphone cut out on me. So now I'm just using yeah, these you, you, Your sound is fine. Good. A, okay. A bit nasal perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is because these uh, earbuds yep. are now doing the work. You know, once again, we're talking digital technology. And as I was speaking, I just got a message that came across my screen saying it's now defaulted to your power beat and, and away from your fancy $800 microphone. So, so much for that. Uh, and I didn't have time to fix it. But anyway, as long as you can hear me, this this notion that digital is trying to create, you know, a, a, a newer, better version of us. Is that is that something? Let's start with this that was inherent in the inner logic of digital from the get-go? Yes. Uh, my godfather, as you noted in the uh, original introduction, uh, was uh, Norbert Wiener. Right. Uh, at a drinking party in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Norbert Wiener and a handful of his friends, including my father, who was his protege, uh, coined the term cybernetics. Wow. Uh, there was actually an earlier coinage. Uh, it all stems, of course, from the uh, Greek uh, figure of Kybernetes. But the next thing that Norbert Wiener did after publishing in 1948 the book uh, Cybernetics, he was already well into this process by then. He then published a book called The Human Use of Human Beings. Still in print, however, the book that is now in print is radically different from the original book that he got, that he wrote and published in 1950. And that was his uh, uh, essential attack on the attempt to reduce human beings to um, equations, um, the form of psychology which grew up in the 1950s in the wake of this is called cognitive psychology. It directly equates human beings with information processors or computers. Um, what I have said on many occasions is I was once a computer architect and I'm a father. Right. I can tell you, I have participated in the making of human beings. I participated in the making of advanced computer architectures. They're completely different. There's nothing, <laughs> nothing, nothing the same about them at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would concur in that. And so what, what is happening now, exactly as Thomas Kuhn, who published in 1962, his structure of scientific revolutions. So here we're back to using this critical word structure. Why don't we substitute grammar? The, the grammar of scientific revolutions. And he got at least a part of it right. I cannot identify a single scientific field today that is not taken seriously what used to be simply dismissed as gadflies. Where the, the entire edifice the last century plus of scientific endeavor is now in the process of crumbling. Oh. Biology, um, really thoughtful biologists today 
cannot be neo-Darwinians. Evolution cannot be the right explanation. Really? Really. Okay. Um, I will actually be interviewed towards the end of of August. Um, Well, it's it's been chipping away at this for a long time. So there's a whole field called epigenetics, um, which which many smart people have have come to. But um, a fellow who we've been working with is... um, um, has written a book about the intentionality of evolution. That evolution has a teleology, has a purpose to it. And that there's formal causation. He hasn't quite gotten to that conversation yet, but I will be speaking on his podcast uh, at the end of August. And yes, that will be uh, high on my list uh, of that a conversation with Scott Jordan, but um, Look, go ahead. Anyway, we, we sort of digressed a bit. Let's stay on this main thread of thinking. The effects of digital technology undermining <clears throat> television-based science. Recognizing here that virtually, you know, a, a very large component of social science has moved into the realm of irreproducibility these studies that are being published simply cannot be reproduced furthermore statistics is not causality obviously right so why are we swimming in statistics because you cannot take populations of humans and put them in a laboratory situation as much as we try so we have to do statistical aggregates. Did you die of smoking? No one knows. So much of today's medicine winds up with the nobody knows answer. Right. Will we see a revival of Galen? Will we see a revival of the four humors? Absolutely. <laughs> There might be different humors, though. No, I think that very well might be. <laughs> as long as there's a good humor in there, uh, I'll, yeah. I'll be happy. Um, physics oh, has collapsed. Physicists, no, not, no physicists. The, the most popular television show in the past decade was a show um, in terms of, of ratings and spinoffs and so forth. Was a show called Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Big Bang Theory. Uh, the, the main character there uh, is a physicist at Caltech pursuing string theory. As becomes clear throughout the 10 or so seasons of Big Bang, doesn't work. String theory is, is a hoax. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so medicine, social science, physics, biology, mathematics, these are all now being... Their fundamental assumptions are being deeply, deeply questioned. Why? What? Yeah. What made that happen? <clears throat> so we have uh, generations of kids, and we're noticing radical changes in how they're viewing things. We have a massive edifice of scientific effort, which, which is, um, according to the people who are in those uh, realms, those fields. Their own assessment is this whole thing has gone haywire. 
Yeah, well, the paradigms are collapsing all over the scientific world. Correct. We have geopolitical risks in which we're living now on the edge of potential World War III. Yes. What happened to globalism? It's gone. Nobody, nobody talks about it anymore. Uh, and, and But that's an interesting cover. Why is globalism gone? But, but go on. Right. Well, um, the simple answer to that is globalism was based on the technology of satellites. And satellites were brought in to beam the BBC television uh, into everybody's home. Now people don't want BBC television anymore. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Correct. Well, <clears throat> you know, all of this points to the fact, that, that sort of returning to where we began, we probably should... Uh, uh, call it quits here pretty soon, which is that we are currently undergoing a massive sea change in our way of understanding existence and reality. And and I think the genius of, of your approach and what you've been what you've been on about, as they say in, in the UK, what you've been on about for, for many decades now is that shifts in technology have gone hand in hand with shifts in precisely how we view reality, and we have not yet even begun to pay enough attention to the manner in which modern digital technology has not only shifted our way of viewing reality, but is making it almost impossible to conceive of a different way of viewing reality. And perhaps that's something we can talk about in a future installment. With the death of imagination, we can't even, that's the hegemonic control that this system currently has on us, we cannot even now break out of it because of our interior senses being so attenuated and, you know, and, and destroyed uh, that we can't even imagine these things anymore. So we're sort of, we're, we're in a, we're in kind of a deep pickle. And then the next step, of course, is artificial intelligence. And I mean, we could talk at length about, is it what we mean by intelligence for starters, you know, and going. So let's save that for next time. But, but, but before we end, is there is there are there any loose ends you want to tie up? Any sort of last things you want to say? Immediately after World War II, Romano Guardini, <clears throat> um, finally in uh, Munich, uh, delivered a series of lectures which have been published under the title "The End of the Modern World." I just reread that book <laughs> on the plane to Rome. I reread that. We must consider the reality that we are no longer modern. Yes, I could not agree more. And I, there's a great introduction to the latest version of that book that, that drives this point home beautifully. Yes. The original, the original um, uh, version of that uh, had Fritz Willemsen, the man who ultimately took Marshall McLuhan under his wing and taught him a thing or two. <clears throat> yeah. If that's the one you're talking about. That is the one I'm talking about. Willemson's uh, introduction, uh, and he, he he points out quite clearly that for Guardini, <clears throat> I mean, do, I mean, look at the title of the book, "The End of the Modern World," uh, that Guardini takes a a very scorched earth mentality towards this notion that that modernity still represents the mentality uh, of the world today. And, and that Guardini is unsparing in his analysis of what this means, that what it, what it entails is a kind of nihilism, 
What it entails is, in a sense, the destruction of almost everything. And in, in a very scary sense, the complete inability of the gospel to penetrate this, uh, unless we approach the world with eyes wide open to, to the, the destruction that has been brought upon us. It's, it's an absolutely fascinating book that I wish everybody would read. The second um, series of lectures, as you know, and it's included in the current ISI uh, print, is, is, was entitled Power and Responsibility. Yes. And, and, and that is where we, where the Gen Z, where those of us who are beginning to talk about these topics find ourselves. We, we, are, we have been overtaken by irresponsible, power-hungry uh, characters uh, worldwide. It yes. is our responsibility to take that power and put it uh, to God's purposes, not to man's. Why don't we end on that note right there? It is our responsibility to take that power and put it to God's purposes uh, and not to man's. Uh, and and I, I like that ending. We, we absolutely, Mark, we must do part two of this. It's absolutely right. endlessly fascinating talking to you, not just your, your, your warmth, your friendship, your intelligence, but your background. Uh, it is very true as both you and I, I'm in my 60s, you're in your 70s. With age does come, I don't know if it's wisdom, but it's certainly perspective and a long view that I think that it's important. Uh, and I think your voice is an important one. So thanks for, com for thanks for coming on there. This I thought this was fantastic. And um, until next time, everyone. Thank you, Mark, for coming on the show. Thank you, Larry, very much.